Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is David Shankine. He's the CEO of Cambridge, Massachusetts-based Agios Pharmaceuticals. Agios was founded a decade ago on the then provocative idea of fighting cancer via new understanding of metabolic pathways that get hijacked by cancer cells. The company has grown up quite a bit since those days. It went from concept, to new chemical entities, to clinical trials, to a drug on the U.S. market in its partnership with Celgene, in something akin to warp speed. Ten years. The company's second drug candidate, a molecule that it owns completely on its own, is now under review at the FDA for the treatment of a form of acute myeloid leukemia. In a world of short-term gains and desire for the quick flip, Shenkine is unapologetic in his desire to build what he calls the next Genentech. Shenkine also has an interesting backstory. While most outsiders think biotech is nothing but eggheads from Harvard and Stanford doing stuff only they can understand, here's a guy who went to a no-name school and went further than most. As my friend Ben Fiddler at Xconomy in a profile a few years ago wrote, quote, David Shenkine is a kid from Queens, an underdog, the kid who barely eked his way into medical school, the one who had to work day and night as a young doctor to keep up, end quote. So how did the underdog win? And what is Agios doing to deliver the goods over and over for patients to truly hone its drug discovery and development mojo? There's a story here. Now, before we dive in, a word from our sponsors. I talk with a lot of CEOs for the Timmerman Report, and it's clear all of them are under pressure to get clinical data as soon as humanly possible. Investors demand it and patients deserve it. Phase one clinical trials have traditionally been the very first time that data from patients becomes available. And we all know that that's what matters. Presage Biosciences is working to improve this approach. I covered the company back at its founding. They have been working on creating a way for researchers to obtain human data on investigational therapies a year or two before they could with a traditional phase one trial. Their business is simple. They are working with biopharma companies to use Presage's patented device that enables intratumoral microdosing of experimental cancer drugs. And here's the thing, it lets researchers assess several drugs at once against a single tumor while the tumor is still in the patient. The device is being used in a clinical trial right now. To learn more, go to presagebio.com. And did you know there are only four weeks left until BioEurope Spring, the largest springtime partnering conference for biopharma? taking place in Amsterdam from March 12 to 14. This event brings together more than 2,500 high-level executives from pharma, biotech, and top VC firms to facilitate partnerships that drive drug development. There will be over 3,500 licensing opportunities on offer, 15,000 one-on-one meetings, 100-plus company presentations, and programs and workshops featuring more than 60 of the leading industry experts speaking on the most relevant industry topics. Don't miss your chance to meet and network with your best fit partners. And special bonus, use the code LONGRUN, all one word, and save 200 euros on your registration. I'll say that again, listeners of this show. When you register for BioEurope Spring, type in the code LONGRUN, all one word, and save 200 euros on your registration. Next on the long run, Bruce Booth of Atlas Venture. 
You've read his blog. Now hear his voice. Listen to Bruce specifically talk about things that worry him a lot. How biotech is struggling to develop enough entrepreneurial talent, human capital really, to make the most from all the science and technology that he wants to invest in. And lastly, thanks for listening. Please leave a comment on iTunes, your favorite podcast app, or on social media. That's how people find out about this show. And if you like the long run, you will love reading Timmerman Report. Individuals can subscribe there for $149 a year to get original, analytical, thought-provoking articles year-round. Go to TimmermanReport.com slash subscribe to learn more. Now, join me and David Schenkine for the long run. So here I am today at the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference with David Shankine. He's the CEO of Agios Pharmaceuticals, cancer drug developer out of Cambridge, Massachusetts. Welcome and thanks for being on the long run. Thanks, Luke. I'm thrilled to be here and uh, looking forward to our conversation. So David, you may not know this, but I um, was at Xconomy a few years ago and, and edited this profile of you. So I know a little bit about your story, uh, where you come from, but for, uh, for the listeners who may not know... Just start by telling me a little bit about yourself. So I'm a New Yorker, grew up in New York right through high school, and was a chemistry major as an undergraduate, and then went to medical school. Came to Boston and did my training at Tufts in Boston in internal medicine, cancer medicine, a research fellowship, and then went on the faculty at Tufts and for close to 14 years uh, practiced uh, adult hematology and oncology, mainly uh, malignant blood diseases, and had a research laboratory and a teaching responsibility. Okay, so this is the resume stuff, the kind of stuff that, you know, prepares you to become the CEO of a company like Agios. But I'm going to peel back another layer about, you know, who you are as a person, the character that, that you've become. So I, I think the lead on that story was something to the effect of David Schenkine is a kid from Queens, an <laughs> and underdog. Uh, tell, tell me about that. Uh, well, that um, upbringing. you know, I grew up in Forest Hills. Um, First-generation American. My parents both actually survived the Holocaust uh, and came to the United States in the 50s. And uh, we were, you know, a pretty typical middle-class family. I, I went to a really good high school. And... Um, Bronx Science? I went to Stuyvesant. Okay. Uh, it's a science and math high school, but it's a public school. You take a test to get in. Took the subway every morning to get there. I applied because two of my other friends were applying, and so it seemed like a fun thing to do. The other part here that I, I pulled up from the archives, forgive me, uh, is you're the kid who barely eked his way into medical school, or so you said. Uh, didn't necessarily see yourself as the smartest kid in school. That was Eric Lander, I think. Yeah, right? Eric Lander was definitely the smartest uh, in my high school at the time, and there was a big gap between Eric and myself, and I think there probably still is. Uh, so uh, I was an undergraduate at Wesleyan University uh, as a chemistry major. I played a lot of sports, too. Squash and tennis were my main sports uh, at Wesleyan. And it came time to apply to medical school, and I was a very good student, uh, and I applied to like 31 medical schools and got rejected from 29, uh, and got waitlisted at one, and that's the one I went to at SUNY Upstate State University of New York in uh, Syracuse, New York, and went there for medical school. And then when was looking for residency, the challenge was that I wanted to go to Tufts for my residency, which had historically only taken students out of Ivy League medical schools. And so I really had an uphill battle coming out of a state school. Uh, but I was fortunate enough to get in, and that really changed my career path. 
What was driving you to become a doctor, to go to medical school? You know, I, I definitely was science-oriented. I had a, I believe very strongly in role models, um, and I had a very early role model in my life from my pediatrician who was an unbelievably, at least to my eyes as a child growing up and as an adolescent, an unbelievably compassionate person. And I thought from watching him that medicine was such an unbelievably noble profession in terms of helping people. And I had the good fortune, even as a medical student, I actually spent a summer with him before he retired uh, in his practice in uh, Queens. And uh, so he was a very important role model. I'm the first physician in my family. Mm-hmm. So certainly it wasn't out of family pressure. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And how do you end up specializing in hematology? So as a resident at Tufts, you, like in most residencies, you uh, spend time in all the different disciplines, kidney disease, infectious disease, and cancer medicine, hematology, And again, it comes down to role models. And I was initially thinking of infectious disease because this was 1983-84. AIDS was just becoming known as a disease. And it was uh, potentially something I was thinking about. And then I did a rotation with a Dr. Robert Schwartz, who became my mentor in medicine, one of the giants of hematology. Uh, just passed away uh, last year in 2017. And I saw him uh, when I worked with him as an unbelievably compassionate physician, a scientist. And I just fell in love with hematology, the study of the blood. And when you take care of patients with blood diseases, you don't just take care of part of them. You take care of everything in their life. Because if you have cancer of your blood, if you have myeloma, if you have leukemia, you don't worry about anything else going on. And so your physician takes care of everything. And I fell in love with that. And that's what got me into it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Gaining confidence along the way. Yeah, I think by the time I got through my residency, I was feeling more confident about who I was and, and what my skill set was. I love taking care of patients. And I love the idea of helping individual patients and their families. That has shaped my whole career. And I also got very involved in clinical research then, in trying to develop novel therapies and making an impact, not just on an individual patient, which is obviously paramount, but trying to shape the field. And that's ultimately what drew me into industry, was trying to make that sort of impact on a much bigger level. Now, this would have been before some of the big drugs for hematology, like a Gleevec or, uh, you know, the Velcades and Revlimids came along and, and, you know, opened up a lot of possibilities, helped a lot of people in a big way. What were, what was happening in the field that uh, was intellectually interesting or like really impactful that drew you in? So my primary area of expertise was in the management of malignant lymphoma. And we were dealing with conventional chemotherapy. And we were beginning to, uh, the new drug uh, in 1997 that we started working with was rituximab. Okay. And that was two things. A, it was a revolution in the way we were treating patients with lymphoma. And it gave me my first exposure to a company called Genentech, which eventually, as you know, I would end up working at. And so that really was was shaping the field was rituximab, and it was incredibly exciting to see that happen. The second was Gleevec. And so I was still an academic physician, 
And my patients with CML in 1999 and 2000, I was taking to a bone marrow transplant. And then we started to see the early data emerging from Novartis on Gleevec. And this concept of, wait a minute, I used to take a patient with CML to a bone marrow transplant. Now I'm going to give them a pill. I mean, just was mind blowing. Uh, and why? Bone marrow transplant, pretty effective, but um, much more difficult, invasive, um, expensive. I mean, and toxic. And so mm-hmm. in, you know, back in those days, and even now doing an allogeneic bone marrow transplant from a donor carries a risk of, of dying from the transplant. Mm-hmm. And, the, and there were young patients that I took care of who unfortunately passed away from the treatment, not the disease. And so the concept of Gleevec and targeted precision medicine uh, early on, again, that has shaped who I am as a drug developer as well as a hematologist. So how do you end up going into industry? Is this like one of those things where a lot of doctors, they feel like they make a difference on a patient by patient, one day at a time basis, but then you look at something like a rituxan or a Gleevec and think, okay, I can have a much bigger impact? It was partly that and partly um, meeting somebody. So, you know, in the 80s and 90s, particularly in Boston, going in from academic medicine, if you were in the ivory tower of academic medicine, as I was, moving into industry was just not done. Just was not done. And uh, by the time we got close to 2000, people were starting to do it. And I, as you said, I was beginning to think about, can I make even a bigger impact on society, on patients, rather than one patient at a time? But really what boiled it down is a friend of mine asked me as a favor, would I meet Mark Levin, who at the time was the CEO of Millennium. Millennium had just in-licensed the proteasome inhibitor, which was in phase one clinical trials, and they were looking for someone, a hematologist, to develop the drug and lead a group. And I really wasn't interested, but I said as a favor, I would meet Mark. And Mark is an extraordinary person, a visionary. Persuasive. Persuasive. And six weeks later, I was working at Millennium, uh, leading the development of Velcade, what became Velcade, Mm -hmm. and leading their oncology group. I kept my academic appointments so I could still see patients one day a week. But it was really Mark who drew me out of academic medicine uh, into industry and the impact that we could make and what we did to myeloma and helped revolutionize the way we treat myeloma has what's kept me in industry. Now, was that a tricky transition for you to make? I mean, did people at the academic institution look and think askance? Like, well, what are you doing? Um, like, uh, what, what are... Yeah, by, by 2001, which is when I went there in January 2001, people were beginning to move into... Uh, industry. I had already been in academic medicine for 13, 14 years, so I was pretty well established in academic medicine. I think, you know, it definitely caused some shockwaves, both at Tufts and at the other parts of the uh, academic institutions that I had interacted with. But I think people saw the potential opportunity. Certainly my patients did. My patients with myeloma said, if you're going to leave me to go into industry, you better make an impact in myeloma. Because at the time, the average survival in multiple myeloma was three years. Mm-hmm. And now, <laughs> now it's, it's well over a decade. Yeah. Maybe longer. So that's interesting. Your patients were actually quite understanding. They didn't think you were going to work for the big bad wolf. No, absolutely not. Uh, they 
understood that I wanted to make an impact on patient care and healthcare at a much bigger level than they could, I could do one patient at a time. Certainly there were a lot of my patients who were sad that I was leaving to take care of, you know, that I wouldn't take care of them anymore. But to make that kind of impact, that, that's what drew me there. And that's what's kept me in industry, both at Millennium, Genentech, and at Agios. Change the field, change the practice of medicine. Mm-hmm. So you're there at Millennium. How, how long were you there? I was at Millennium about five years. Mm-hmm. We developed what became Velcade, launched it around the world. Very exciting time, extraordinary company. And then I got a phone call from out here in San Francisco, where we're sitting now, from the chief medical officer out there who I had met at a meeting, asking me if I was interested in a position to run all of cancer medicine at Genentech. Was this Hal Barron? Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, when Hal called me and asked me if I was interested in looking at that job, how could I say no? Um, Rituximab was already uh, a product of Genentech. Avastin had just been approved. Herceptin was already approved. They had Tarceva in their pipeline and a variety of other uh, novel agents in early development. So I came out here and met people at Genentech and fell in love with the culture. The scientific culture at Genentech was extraordinary. And meeting Sue Hellman and Art Levinson um, and Hal Barron, it was a very easy decision for me and my wife to move out to California. So what was your, your job there? So I was the senior vice president in charge of hematology and oncology clinical drug development. So everything from first in human to the end of the patent life for everything in oncology and hematology. And so it was a very large group. At one point, we had a little over 60 medical oncologists in the group, and we led the development of Avastin in all of its indications, uh, Herceptin in the adjuvant setting, getting rituximab approved in CLL and other indications, and bringing a host of new medicines to market as well. It's an extraordinary four years that I spent there. Yeah, there were the follow-on um, CD20-directed and HER2-directed molecules That's as well. That's correct. So it was an extraordinary time, um, and uh, so it was, a, uh, for me, a very exciting four years. And so then Roche buys Genentech and Things change. Some people that you mentioned, they're no longer there. Uh, and it's 2009, I think. That's right? correct. And, and so like, <laughs> this is the financial crisis, biotech, nuclear winter. Uh, but there's still a lot of great science going, there is. going on. And, you know, it was 2009. Uh, Roche had come in and I was having to make my decision whether I was going to stay with the combined organization. And I was already having worked under Art Levinson, an extraordinary leader, as you know, I was beginning to think about, could I try my hand at leading a company one day? And I viewed this as a potential opportunity. Um, I wasn't looking for anything. And then I heard about Agios getting started. How how old are you at this point? uh, 52. Okay. So at this point, you've got, you know, the medical background, the industry experience, you've you've had a a success run. You, You sort of are the kind of guy a venture capitalist would circle on a list, a, a candidate to potentially run one of these things. So by this point, I heard from Third Rock Ventures, which was now run by Mark Levin, who I obviously knew from Millennium Days. Small world. Small world. And Mark told me about this company called Agios. I knew the three scientists who had founded the company. Craig Thompson, uh, who's now the CEO of Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York. Lou Cantley, who's now the head of the Cancer Center at Cornell and Tack Mack, who heads the cancer program at Princess Margaret in Toronto. I knew three of those three. 
I knew their science. And I'd heard about this emerging new field of cancer metabolism, how cancers have rewired their metabolic machinery. And so I met with all three scientists as I was making my decision, do I stay with Roche Genentech or potentially leave? And I truly fell in love with the science of Agios. Now, the scary part was that Agios was started in 2009 after the financial crisis with no drugs, no chemical matter, maybe a target or two, a handful of employees. So by the time I first met some of the people, there were about 10 employees. And um, it was a big leap of faith. But the main question I asked the three venture capitalists was, I'd like to build the next Genentech. And so I want to build a true research organization that will discover novel targets, make medicines that change the field. Will you let us and let me build a company that will last rather than trying to flip it and sell it. And they said, yes, we want to build a great company. Now, just saying that phrase, I want to build the next Genentech. I mean, that is such a uh, Herculean kind of undertaking, um, especially at that moment in time. What, what's lighting that fire? I think the, the working at Genentech and experiencing the extraordinary culture there and the scientific prowess at that time, many of the startups that were getting started in 2008 and 2009 were being built to be sold within a couple of years. And I actually didn't think it was healthy for the industry for all of these small companies to get absorbed into the large companies. Because I think smaller companies, and Genentech was one of them, it's, they're more likely to keep the patient directly at the center of every decision they make. That was the beauty of Genentech. All the decisions were made, and we do that at Agios as well, based on how good is the science and will this help a patient. Bigger companies, some of them, have struggled to keep their sights on those two facts. And so I, I naively said to the investors, I want to build another great company that's focused on science, novel science, not Me Too drugs, and focused on patients. There's something about the people part of this too. Absolutely. Because Genentech, when people talk about Genentech and often in such reverent terms, it, it, they, it, they often come back to this culture, uh, uh, people working together. Um, uh, science is a team sport. And when you uh, break these up into distinct projects and you get a, a few people that work together on one drug for a few years and then flip it to a big company, they often scatter to the wind. They don't work together anymore. Whatever kind of esprit de corps that you had, that that kind of disappears into the wind. And, you know, maybe that next company can, you know, incorporate some of the bright ideas and put them together in a, in a, in a place where they can develop another drug. But often it doesn't. It, it's, so there was something like special there, right? So this is like, this there is what was, makes you want to be a company builder. Yeah, it was. It, it's about being a company builder and uh, it's all about the people and the culture you create. And so when I started and came to Agios and started working at Agios, uh, there were two things I knew I had to do at the same time and one could not lead the other. They had to be done in parallel. Focus on great scientists and great science. And the second is very intentionally building a culture. Not let it just happen and see what happens, but be very intentional about what are we trying to build and what is the culture going to be like? What are those anchor pillars of the culture that even as we grow from 10 people to now 400, they will still be there? 
And so that was critical in the early days. And I think it has helped us go from 10 people to 400 people. And hopefully this year, two products on the market and a very exciting pipeline. Presage Biosciences has a microinjector device that enables intratumoral microdosing of experimental cancer drugs. Why does this matter? It enables researchers to evaluate several drugs at once against a single tumor while the tumor is still in the patient. It's in clinical trials now. To learn more, go to presagebio.com. And did you know that there are only four weeks left until BioEurope Spring, the largest springtime partnering conference for BioPharma, taking place in Amsterdam from March 12 to 14? This event will bring together more than 2,500 high-level executives from pharma, biotech, and top VC firms to facilitate partnerships that drive drug development. And here's a special deal for listeners of the Long Run Podcast. Before you register for BioEurope Spring, type in the code LONGRUN, all one word, and you'll save 200 euros on your registration. I'll say that again. Type in the code LONGRUN, all one word, and save 200 euros on your registration for BioEurope Spring. Coming up in Amsterdam, March 12, 14. Coming back to the science, this idea of cancer metabolism, that the tumors uh, essentially get uh, like addicted. They, they're able to um, hoover up more and more uh, energy than other cell types. Um, and, and there was this thought that you might be able to interfere, intervene with in that process. Um, what, um, how did that play out? And what were some of the uh, unexpected um, you know, bumps along the road? Yeah, so, you know, the field of cancer metabolism goes back to the 1920s with the discovery that led to the Nobel Prize by Otto Warburg that cancers, as you said, bring in more nutrients, sugars, than normal cells, but break them down fundamentally differently. If you take a normal cell and feed it sugar, it turns that sugar into energy. If you take a cancer cell and feed it sugar, it, it ferments it like it was making wine and turns it into lactic acid. And so it's been known for decades that cancers have rewired their metabolic machinery. So we came in and started the company, and we said, we're going to look for metabolic enzymes, part of the machinery, that's different in a cancer than in a normal, that maybe could be the Achilles heel. And we were looking at targets, looking at metabolic enzymes, hadn't quite found anything in the first six months that really looked like it was exciting enough to really start working on. And then uh, the lightning bolt was a paper by a brilliant scientist, Bert Vogelstein, out of Johns Hopkins. And Bert Vogelstein published a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine in um, early 2009 that they were deep sequencing patients with brain tumors. And they found a mutation that kept occurring in a normal metabolic enzyme known as isocitrate dehydrogenase. It's part of what's known as the Krebs cycle, which is one of the important metabolism cycles to make energy in your cells. And uh, Bert Vogelstein's group looked at that and did some early work and showed that that enzyme, when it's mutated in these cancers, is a dead enzyme. So it's lost its function. And we looked at that, and we were about 15, 16 employees. And we looked at that paper, and our founders came in, and we were all discussing it together. And we said, this is extraordinary. Here is a normal metabolic enzyme that's mutated in cancer, but yet it's not working. And so we decided that we were going to spend a little bit of our money that we had and do some biochemistry experiments. 
because it felt to us that maybe this wasn't the whole story. And this goes to the culture of the science organization we have built, where people are willing to take risk because they're not worried about failing. They're incentivized to either succeed or fail. We don't care. We want you to get an answer. You're not going to you? lose your job. You're not going to look stupid in front no. of your colleagues. No. We give the same party to a team when they kill a program that we give when they get uh, a program to move forward. You incentivize people to get an answer, positive or negative. So they're willing to do the killer experiment first. So in this case, our head of biochemistry did a very simple killer experiment and asked, if I take the IDH mutated cancer that we've made in the laboratory and I compare its metabolism to a normal cell, is it different? And we had a eureka moment. They happen every few times in your career that are extraordinary. And we found that the cancer cell was making a single metabolite at several hundredfold higher concentration than the normal cell. And that told us that the mutated enzyme wasn't dead like the Vogelstein lab had published, but in fact had gained a new function and was a gain of function. And that meant it was a potential drug target. And so this goes to the other part of the Agios culture from the beginning is be willing to shatter dogmas, challenge them, challenge each other. It's one of our core values we call edge. Be willing to push each other with a level of respect. We've had a no asshole rule from the beginning, which we feel very strongly about, pardon my French. Um, and uh, so we want people to challenge each other really hard, but not challenge them personally. So IDH becomes um, suddenly a target of interest. Correct. And, and there's a couple, and then you got more work to do. We got a lot more work to do because we have to understand the biology because does the cancer really care about this target? Is this what's driving the cancer? How would you drug it? What will happen? How's it going to work? And we were a small company. We had about 25 employees. Um, we were getting ready to publish our first paper. We published that IDH paper in Nature in November 2009, and that put our little tiny company on the map. And uh, we knew we had to do two things. We needed to start serious drug discovery, and we needed some serious cash um, because we had already used up a significant chunk of the original venture dollars. And that's where we started looking for a corporate partner. And our currency was hey, we're 20 scientists, we think we're pretty smart, we're building a great company, and we have this nature paper that's about to come out of this extraordinary discovery we made. Do you want to partner with us in this new field of biology? It's kind of brazen. <laughs> <laughs> that is what it often takes. Uh, you uh, didn't have a B round. No, we did point. not have a B round. And so uh, we reached out to a whole series of corporate partners there were four or five companies that were very interested in potentially working in this space, and Celgene was just a perfect fit. This was, uh, I had had dinner with Saul Barra, who I had known. He was the CEO of Celgene. They, he told me that they were thinking of making some uh, significant financial bets in new areas of biology, and cancer metabolism was one of them. A lot of credit goes to Tom Daniel, who was the head of research. Tom came in, met with our scientists, and fell in love with the science, and we went off to the races. This was 2010. 2010 right? is when we signed the deal. And this was before Celgene went on its business development spree. We were one of the first deals they did. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, we received a $130 million upfront check uh, from Celgene. And Agios was very important to us from a cultural perspective. 
had complete control over research and early development. But they got the right, the commercial rights to the to first work. drug. Mm-hmm. And so the way the deal worked was it was a four-year deal with a two-year extension. We said the first drug, if we make a drug, you can have commercial worldwide commercial rights. We want to be able to co-promote with you in the United States. We want royalties and milestones. And that's what's happened with our drug that we launched uh, on August 1st, 2017, known as Enacidinib or IDFA. But we said the second drug we make, we want to have uh, rights in the United States, full rights. You can have rights outside the United States. That's since been modified with the second IDH inhibitor. And that drug, Ivocidinib, uh, where we've submitted the NDA, as you know, to the FDA in December, we have worldwide rights on that. So the architecture of this deal was very important. I mean, if you come back to what you said earlier about wanting to build a company to be independent so that you can you know, have your science culture and continue to do this over and over again, you don't want to give away the whole store. Correct. And so we said from the beginning, I said this to Saul and to Tom Daniel, we need control over research and early development, and we need to have significant commercial rights, and we're not going to partner everything. And that's when we started working on rare genetic diseases, which, as you know, we do. Those are not partnered with Celgene at all. And the deal is going to expire so that this will help us get started. And we wouldn't be where we are today without Celgene's belief in us as an 18-person company. Um, but now we're moving into independence uh, with wholly owned drugs and obviously as a public company. Now, let's talk about the development of these first two drugs, inacidinib and ivocidinib. Did Correct. I get, get ivocidinib. Right? Ivocidinib. Okay. <laughs> I'll practice that. Um, but so these go for, uh, they're, they're, they're present in a segment of the acute myeloid leukemia population. That's right. So if you look at um, acute myelogenous leukemia, as you know, is a disease. And as a hematologist, I've been taking care of these patients for over 30 years. There's really been a stagnation in innovation in that space. We've been using the same drugs for 30, 40 years. In the United States and the major European countries, there's about 50,000 new patients diagnosed with AML every year. 20% of them carry an IDH mutation, either IDH1 or IDH2. So that's about 10,000 new patients per year, uh, excluding Asia where there's even more, with an IDH mutated AML. And that's the target of our two drugs. Now, did you, uh, was this easy to identify patients in clinical trials with this biomarker? It was. So, you know, the approach we've taken in cancer from day one, and I started this in Genentech when I was leading the group, is we need to practice precision medicine. Let's know the right patients we're going to treat based on a biomarker so that we're not fishing around in phase one. And that way, if the drug works, we're going to know right away and we can go fast. And if the drug doesn't work, we're going to know right away and we can stop drug development. So with IDH, we developed the biomarker, which is the genetic test, And all of our clinical trials with both the IDH2 and IDH1 inhibitors have only been in patients who carry the mutation. And it was very easy to enroll and enrolled very quickly. So for Enacidinib, the IDH2 inhibitor, we began that trial in September of 2013 at five major cancer centers. By March of 2014, we were presenting the first data at the AACR. We were very fortunate 
in the first cohort, you know, you do dose escalation, three patients at dose one, then you go to dose two. Of the first three patients who went into dose one, the second patient went into complete remission. This is a patient with relapse and refractory AML now getting a pill once a day went into complete remission. Extraordinary. And this is a low dose. You haven't reached That's your MTD. Correct. That's correct. We never hit an MTD, actually. Uh-huh. Uh, and so um, so we were able to enroll very quickly in these trials for both these drugs. And as you know, the first approval, the approval of IDFA, was a full approval by the FDA, not an accelerated approval. And that was on the first in human phase one, two clinical trial. So you start the trial in September of 2013. You win the FDA approval four years later. Three years and 11 months. Okay. (laughs) But who's counting? (laughs) That is um, faster than usual. That is. And how many total patients were in the the application, the safety database? Well, the safety database had between three and 400 patients in it because of other trials that were ongoing. The primary data set was approximately 125 patients with relapse refractory AML receiving the drug. And close to 30% of them, um, 25 to 30% of them went into complete remission. So um, the time, how how much money did this cost? So I don't know the the number for that particular particular set of trials, because then Celgene got involved as well. I mean, I think we've we've been public with the fact that since, you know, if you look to the end of, you know, 20... 17 or so at the time of approval, we've raised between Celgene and the capital markets about $1.5 billion. And at the time of the approval of IDFA, we had spent about half of that. So about $700 million uh, for the approval and the, of, the, of IDFA and then the other work that we have done. So we've been capital efficient because precision medicine, you know the right patients to treat. Um, and we've been efficient. Well, and a lot of that money goes into building the company, building the platform. So, I mean, I'm not doing a full, you know, Tufts Center for the Study of Drug Development analysis here. Um, but um, presume, once you've made that investment, um, you'll have other drugs that you should be able to, you know, throw off of this. Uh, well, we hope so. We built and, a and very so- robust uh, research platform. But as you know, clinical trials are getting more and more expensive given all the costs. Uh, we have to use CROs for the monitoring of, of the sites around the world that participate in our clinical trials. Right. Now, Celgene, your partner, is taking the lead, as you said, on the first drug. Correct. IDFA, the IDH2 inhibitor. Um, and you'll get royalties. That's on, correct. On how they do. Uh, were you involved in things like pricing? Uh, no, we couldn't be because of antitrust laws, because we have an IDH inhibitor as well. And so uh, we were not involved at all. Celgene informed us of the price of the day before launch. Okay. So last year is a big year. You got to get this application. You're working with Celgene to get this application shepherded through the FDA, answer their questions, get the manufacturing all ready to go. But you're also working in parallel on uh, the, the next drug, that uh, the IDH1 inhibitor, which is much more, uh, this is wholly owned. Correct. So this is the one that... Uh, can allow you to really maintain your, your own destiny. That's correct. And so the nice thing, and the, you know, the IDH inhibitors have some parallels. And so as we're going through the FDA review for IDFA with Celgene, 
Every time the FDA would ask us to look at data in this way or that way or this way, our team that was beginning to assemble the NDA for our IDH1 inhibitor would start incorporating that feedback. So we've submitted, as you know, our NDA to the FDA in December of 2017. Hopefully we've incorporated many of those learnings in there. The FDA will have to make a decision by the end of February of this year whether they're going to file or accept that NDA and give us a PDUFA date. And uh, we've hired our sales force. They start actually next week. We have a small sales force now that co-promotes IDFA. And the next wave of the sales force uh, begins next week. And we'll be ready manufacturing-wise, commercially. Uh, if we're successful with the FDA, we'll be ready to launch when they are. You've grown a lot. You had to bring on a lot of new people. Um, and not uh, a different phenotype of individual, not uh, scientists like from the early days. Uh, and I was struck by, I, I saw you speak at the Convergence Forum last spring, and you made a remark about this, this growth and that uh, R&D shall remain the beating heart of this company. That's correct. I said it on the podium at JP Morgan in my presentation on Monday that research is the beating heart of Agios and always will be. Why is that important to you? Because... What we're trying to build is a company that's going to work on novel first-in-class targets. And sure, business development may play a role one day in our future, but that means science has to be at the core. Science and patience, it's the core of our culture. And we've certainly gone through our growing pains, going from 10 employees to 400. We put a huge amount of focus on hiring. And as I mentioned earlier, there are pillars to our culture as our culture evolves, because it doesn't stay stagnant. As it evolves, the pillars of our culture remain intact. Pillars around not having jerks in the building, having edge, really challenging each other on the science, staying focused on science and patience. We believe strongly in single decision makers, not consensus. So we want to hire people who are courageous to make decisions. People know what decisions are being, who's making those decisions. And, and no hierarchy and no silos. Everybody's in the same size office. My office is no bigger than the statistician who sits next to me. Uh, and there's no hierarchy. We, uh, everybody in our building is seated randomly. We're not seated in groups. There's no executive floor. Everybody's seated randomly. And you and shuffle them every once in a while. About every 18 months, we shuffle the deck. We're about uh -huh. to do it again. Uh -huh. And that way you get to meet people across all different organizations and you don't form silos. So you don't have an over-the-wall mentality. But now you are a public company. You've got shareholders. Um, you've burned through a lot of cash. That's the nature of the business that you're in. But, um, you know, now that you have a product on the market and hopefully one that will be wholly owned in, say, middle to the later part of 2018, uh, you get evaluated on some different criteria. That's true. Like your income statement. Your revenues. Yeah, I think our long-term shareholders, which carry the bulk of our shares, are looking for us to build a long-term company based on great science. And they know that's going to take some time. First part, we're about to put a very exciting uh, new molecule, a new medicine into the clinic this quarter that targets a genetic mutation in 15% of all cancers, a much larger indication than IDH. We're just starting, though. So our long-term shareholders are investing in the quality of the science. But you're right. We must take care of patients. We must take care of our shareholders as well. There's a real balance here. And this is something that we talked about and I appreciated your thoughts on over the summer. And that is, 
if if your company is too tilted towards science, well, then it's then it's all academic and theory and never really gets to the patient. Uh, and if it's too focused on the money, then your your scientists will get discouraged and leave. Yeah. And, and you won't have a pipeline. And maybe you can make your numbers next quarter, but you're going to have to do something else in it next year. When I say great science, and we do publish a lot of papers, we're not there. Everybody knows, our scientists know, we're not there to do science experiments. We're there to make medicines, to help patients' lives. And so while we do great science, and a lot of it is very basic biology, we are there to make medicines. And everybody knows that we are there for drug discovery and to make medicines. And that's critically important because we know that if we focus on that, over time, uh, patients will benefit and shareholders will benefit. How, how do you maintain like uh, this, uh, like a separation of church and state, but a healthy respect for each side and what they do? So you don't have the the marketing guy coming in and saying, you know, you know, give me another PD one inhibitor <laughs> because I, you know, that I, that'll sell. Yeah, it comes down to who you try and hire, and we spend a lot of time on hiring. Uh, to hire people who believe in the values and the vision of what we're trying to build. And so we ask those questions and we have employees who have a special role in the hiring who are very much attuned to people who are going to come in and fit or complement our culture and don't come in. And when people come in from big companies, small companies, we tell them, we don't want you to come to Agios and do it the way you did it at another company. We want you to come and figure out the right way to do it for our company. And again, we've had our challenges. So I used to interview uh, every single potential employee. I can't do that anymore. I do meet every new employee. I try and do the Monday morning orientations uh, for the new employees. But now I miss some of those because I come out to JP Morgan. Um, I have a one-on-one -on -one with every new employee. I used to do it in the first week. Now it takes me about a month to see all the new employees. And so some of them have been on the job a month, but I do see every new employee. So those are the adjustments you have to make, but we stay very focused on people and culture. Is there a sweet spot in terms of the size of an organization? It's a really good question. I don't know. Um, we're up to 400 people. You need that bulk of people if you're gonna make real medicines. I'm gonna harken back to Genentech. So at its peak before Roche came in, I think we were about 8,500 employees. And that place was humming. So I don't know how big we can get. And, but I think as long as you stay focused and Art and his team were focused on people and culture and science, um, I don't know. What do you think uh, this can become? I want to become one of the next great companies that's science focused and makes a lot of patients and stays independent. So I don't know. I think as long as we keep doing good science, uh, we have a shot at it. Um, and, you know, I, I said it on the podium on Monday here at the JP Morgan conference. There aren't that many companies, and I'm, I'm saying this not in an arrogant way. There aren't that many companies out there who, by hopefully mid-2018, will have made two products on the market that they discovered the target, did the clinical trials, and brought it through. So nothing's been licensed. It's based on all organic science. That's not that common in our industry anymore. Discovered the target and developed the clinical matter and, and ran them through clinical trials. That's correct. All soup to nuts. Soup to nuts. And it's the first time in my career 
that I've done this because at Genentech, many of the drugs that I worked on had already been discovered before I got there. At Millennium, as you know, the proteasome inhibitor was brought in from another company. So this is the first time I've seen it from discovery of the target to approval of the medicine. It's an extraordinary feeling. It, it's, uh, it takes a special kind of culture to pull that. I mean, come on, I don't want to beat this as a dead horse, but, you know, it, I, it seems like it bears repeating. Um, you know, when I spoke with D.A. Gross, I don't know if you know him. I know. Uh, about going on to Neurocrine, and he, he described this kind of culture at Neurocrine that was like the special forces, like where you've got this, like, incredible do or die mission and uh you've got to develop that new medicine otherwise you're out of business and it creates almost like you know not too sexist language but like a brotherhood a, a, a togetherness that um and, and a lack of hierarchy as you said it doesn't matter who's uh, got the right title or, or whatever i mean you've just got to survive yeah i think one of the important things we've done from day one and it goes back to the science culture that we have is one of the areas I think our industry's gotten in trouble is forcing their scientists to abide by certain metrics. You must deliver three drugs a year or two drugs, whatever the metric is. And it's- INDs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's forced people to, I think, make decisions that are not ideal. And so we've created the culture where we want to develop medicines as quickly as we can. Okay, obviously we've shown that we can go really fast but we keep the bar really high. And if we don't, if it's not ready, it's not ready. And we've had these discussions with our board where they said, you know, we said, we're not ready to bring this drug into the clinic and we're gonna wait another year. And because it's just not ready yet. And sure, we're gonna miss our goal, but that's okay. Because you wanna keep the bar high. Because at the end of the day, it all comes down as, what's the probability of success? You must maintain that. What's, um What's the most exciting thing in your mind that'll change cancer R&D? Uh, you mentioned, you, you just briefly mentioned this idea of evaluating uh, cancers on, on a molecular basis rather than t- uh, a, a tissue of origin. Yeah. That's, that's tradition. That has to happen. I think that's one of the things uh, that needs to happen is we need to stop calling cancers based on where they happen to show up in your body, but rather what's the molecular driver and whether we're harnessing your immune system or we're targeting metabolism or epigenetics or a kinase, we need to know what the driver of that cancer is and target that. So I think that's gonna, that has to continue. And diagnostics are helping us do that. The Scott Gottlieb has been very vocal about wanting to push that. And so we know the FDA is moving in that direction. I think it comes back again to the way we discover novel targets in cancer medicine. And so it's incentivizing people not to have herd mentality, but be willing to challenge dogmas and go after new biology. And we're beginning to see that all over the place. And that, for me, is what's really going to continue to break open science uh, and cancer medicine. Do you think there's a way out of this uh, drug pricing rut that we're in where so many people in the public despise the industry for for pricing, uh, perceived pricing abuses. Yeah, I, I think I think if our industry continues to focus on medicines that create true benefit for patients, weed out some of the bad actors that are gouging prices on drugs that 
haven't created benefit or have been around for decades and really focus on the medicines that have true benefit, then um, I think we'll see our way through this. I think healthcare as a whole has got a lot of issues in terms of the cost of healthcare. There's drugs, there's hospitalizations, there's all the components. And we need to take sort of a more holistic approach to how we think about changing medicine in this country. But from my perspective as a physician and as a drug developer, it's around creating medicines that create benefit for patients. That I think is what we need to reward and reward that, that innovation. And we're coming off of a very exciting six-month period here. I mean, not just your drug getting approved, but a you know, record number of new chemical entities, a couple of uh, very important ones with the CAR-T approvals from Novartis and uh, Gilead Kite, and now also this first viral vector gene therapy from Spark Therapeutics, um, and some creative, unusual pricing models there. Are, 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 I'm sure you're looking at those. Uh, what, what have you taken away from those uh, yeah, I do, think, I do think we need a level of creativity that matches what your drug does. And drugs that are one-time delivery, where you don't know what's going to happen over time, require some of that. For some of the medicines, like for the medicines we're making right now, they're pills. Mm -hmm. And so if the medicine works, you stay on it. If the medicine doesn't work, you stop it. And so you don't bear the cost because you've stopped the drug. Uh, so I think we just need to match the model we use with the type of drug you've made and the benefit it provides. And I think we're getting much more creative at doing that. Well, by the nature of the drug that you're making, it matches up better with government annual budgeting cycles, for instance, or insurance for that matter, as opposed to a single shot yeah. uh, intervention, uh, which by its nature has to be very expensive upfront based on the value it, it delivers over the life of the patient. Um, so, so you're thinking about these, these kind of value uh, and outcomes-based kind I, of approaches? Where we're really focused on is, is making sure we understand the benefit we provide to patients and where does it fit in the management of that disease. We have been from the beginning really trying to create medicines that, and I'll sound old school here and age myself uh, on your show, that rewrite the textbooks. I'm not sure anybody looks at textbooks anymore, but that's what Sue Hellman taught me at Genentech. When you have to rewrite the chapter in the textbook because of a medicine we made, you know you've made an important medicine. We think we've done that with the IDH inhibitors. It's gonna change the way for the 20% of people with AML, it's gonna change the way we treat AML. I've been treating AML for 30 years, as I mentioned before, dripping in poisons through their veins. Now they're home on a pill. That, that's a dramatic change. So that's where I'm focused and we're focused is focusing on medicines that truly change the way we treat a disease. And change people's lives. You and know, change people's lives. I mean, and, and you know, I, I'm preparing for my mountain climb on, on Everest uh, as we speak. And I want you to be careful. <laughs> Thank you. But there was a story in the New York Times, I don't know if you saw this recently, about a, a stage four lung cancer patient from a greater Boston area who uh, went on one of the targeted EGFR inhibitors, 61 years old, and uh, had a, a pretty impressive response, well enough that he was able to go uh, on a Himalayan trek all the way to uh, Miru Peak at 21,000 feet. And I just thought, now this is the kind of thing that, that biotech can do. 
Absolutely. at its best. And and this guy, who knows how long he'll live? Yeah. But the qual- the quality of his experience, I mean, you got to see the pictures. I mean, it's just uh, it's, I, it's a beautiful thing when it when it works. I did see that story, and uh, on the podium on Monday morning when we presented uh, for Agios, at the end, I read a letter that I recently received from a patient, a gentleman in his mid-70s, diagnosed with AML, told by his doctor, I can give you some chemotherapy, here's what it involves, but I would advise you to, to get your affairs in order. And he went home with his family and got ready to uh, put his affairs in order. And then went for a second opinion to a hospital in New York. And they did the molecular test and showed he was IDH2 positive. And instead of chemotherapy, we had a small group of patients who were newly diagnosed that we allowed into our first clinical trial who weren't eligible for aggressive chemotherapy or any type of therapy because of their age. And he went on IDFA three years ago, and he sent me a letter because he's been in complete remission for three years, lives a normal life, takes his pill once a day, never went into the hospital, never went into an infusion center for chemotherapy. And that's change. That's what we need to do. So these stories, and it's not every patient, we wish it was, mm-hmm. um, means that you're changing people's lives. And that's what, that's what keeps us... It's what brings me to work every day, and I think that's what brings the employees of Agios to work every day. I think biotech has just got so much potential there to uh, to make a difference for people, um, you know, not uh, across all walks of life too. You know, uh, wh- no matter where you live, um, you know, and this is this comes back to that question of pricing and access, which is still very much unresolved. Um, Critically but, important, you know, because you know the, the flip side of that is, you know, if you've got uh, an IDH2 mutation, for one reason or another, you couldn't get the drug. I mean, that's that would be a tragedy. Correct. And so Celgene, we know with IDFA, is, and we will do this with our drug, is we will really focus on access. Our goal is to make sure that any patient who's got an IDH mutation that needs our drug gets our drug. Well, I wish you the best, David. Thanks for joining me today on The Long Run. Pleasure. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timberman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the producer and editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. And thanks to Presage Biosciences and EBD Group for sponsoring The Long Run. Next, Bruce Booth. You've read his blog, now hear his voice. Next episode of The Long Run. And last thing, is your company immersed in biotech? Do you need to get your company or product in front of C-level people, top decision makers? You know they're listening to this show and giving it serious attention. There are only a couple of slots for sponsors, so your message won't get lost in the endless online clutter. Want to learn more? Talk to me about a sponsorship of The Long Run. Send me a note, luke at timmermanreport.com. Thank you.